Their story is found in Matthew 2. It begins harmless enough. Wise men from the east, looking for the recently born king of the Jews. They stop and chat with King Herod about what they're up to, and then go on their way. And here's where the story gets a little less Christmasy. Herod views this other king as a potential threat. He tells the Magi, report back to me what you find. The Magi, after finding Jesus, are directed in the dream not to return to Herod. Later, Joseph is born by an angel of the Lord to flee to Egypt with Mary and Jesus. Herod, suspicious and paranoid, orders the boys, two years old and younger, to be killed in the region of Bethlehem. Now what's going on in this story? Two things. Political intrigue and spiritual warfare. Herod, certainly influenced by Satan, is making merciless moves based on securing his throne. On the other hand, the Magi, Joseph, and Mary, all who are attuned to God and not politics, are engaged in spiritual warfare. Satan, in his limited power, is trying to leverage Herod's political paranoia to subvert God's will. God, in his sovereignty, is providing direct guidance to the Magi, Joseph, and Mary to ensure that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. While dramatic events were taking place around Joseph and Mary, they acted out of the faithful, godly lives they were already living. So, what do you think of when you hear the words spiritual warfare? For many, perhaps you think of the classic movie, The Exorcist, with crucifixes, incense, and over-the-top head-turning special effects. For some, maybe it brings to mind sinister demons in whatever form you imagine them. For others, it may conjure up some kind of mystical struggle, sort of a spiritual arm wrestling with an unseen dark force, something that requires intense, focused effort that makes you tired just thinking about it. And for a few, it may be a vision of an angel on one shoulder and a pointy-tailed devil on the other shoulder, both whispering in your ears, battling for attention. I think for many, however they think about it, spiritual warfare is something they feel uncertain about. They don't know how to approach it. They're a little wary and even a little scared. Now, there are elements of truth in each of the images I've mentioned. Satan and demons are involved. In certain situations, it can be a little scary. And the devil does want to distract us from all things holy and good. Frankly, though, it can be a distraction to focus too much of our attention on the more dramatic elements of spiritual warfare. There is a lot of non-biblical imagery and tomfoolery surrounding the topic. But the reality of spiritual warfare is nothing to shy away from or be afraid of. It's an essential element of the normal Christian life. Earthly warfare isn't one thing. Its form varies. It ebbs and flows. There are battles, campaigns, guerrilla actions, scouting forays, times of preparations, and more. Likewise, every experience of spiritual warfare is not a full-on direct assault. In fact, a lot of it involves day-to-day skirmishes and sending off stealth attacks. Now, in the military, new recruits go through boot camp to learn the basics of being a soldier. 
They learn how to handle the weapons, the concepts of strategy, survival methods, and so forth. Advanced training comes later, but the recruits learn enough to, to survive common conflict and to know where to turn for additional resources when needed. Today, my intent is to share with you some basics regarding spiritual warfare that I hope will both diffuse any fear you may have about the topic, as well as equip you with some basics to become more adept at engaging in everyday spiritual warfare. There is a spiritual realm. The example in our first reading about Elisha and his servant reminds us that we truly are surrounded by an unseen spiritual realm. Sometimes, as in the case of the servant, God may choose to open our eyes so that we can see it. Usually, that's not the case. Instead, we will know this spiritual realm exists because God's Word says it does. Also, as we walk in the Holy Spirit, we will become more attuned to it as we hone our spiritual spidey senses. We can also learn clues for recognizing the results of spiritual warfare in our physical, war, physical world, in other people, and in ourselves. For instance, is good fruit or bad fruit being revealed? We'll see some of this as we take a fresh look at the famous passage of Ephesians 6, where Paul describes the armor of God. But before we dive in there, I want to address four basic truths regarding Satan and Jesus. First, Satan is real and he is formidable. So are his demons. He and they are created beings, angels, who rebelled in heaven and now are considered fallen. Angels can be intimidating, even good ones. Throughout scripture, we read about people encountering angels from the Lord and falling down in fear as a result. Angels, good or bad, are not to be trifled with. We need to maintain a healthy respect for what they are. Second, the good news is that angels do have limitations. While they are formidable, they are not to be worshipped or revered. Fallen angels, including Satan, are not on par with God, not even close. They aren't all-knowing, they can't read our minds, and can only be in one location at a time. Satan relies on the servitude of his worldwide web or network of fellow fallen creatures to carry out his vile goals. Satan and his demons can influence our thoughts and create situations that could bring us harm, but they are far from all-powerful like God. Third, Satan and his horde are already defeated. They're losers. The devil is headed for eternal damnation. Just not yet. Which is why we need to be aware of who he is and what he can do. He and his means are also fully under the sovereignty of God. They cannot do any more than what God allows. The book of Job reveals this clearly. Read it sometime. 1 John 4.4 also assures us, You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Fourth, while unredeemed people can be possessed by one or more demons, believers cannot. Why? Because when we accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence within us, and he ain't leaving. 
We have the firm promise of Romans 8, 38-39, where Paul declares, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, the question is, is Satan a formidable foe or a defeated enemy? Yes. It's not either or, either or it's both and. If we view him only as a formidable foe, fear will make us vulnerable to his attacks. If we view him only as a defeated enemy, we will be clueless as to his wiliness, and his traps will be invisible to us. We will be caught before we are even aware of danger. We need to be astutely aware of Satan and his tricks, but not enfeebled by fear of him and his unholy horde. One last word about human possession and exorcism, then we're going to head to Ephesians. I know some of you, as soon as I mentioned the exorcist earlier, you've been recalling wild stories you've heard and are thinking, what about this? And the this is some really graphic, frightening example of so-called exorcism. I've seen the movie and heard the stories too. And my response to what about this is, let's look at what the Bible says. In scripture, in each instance, when the demon was told to leave, there were no histrionics, no crucifixes, no holy water, no secret incantations, no sweat-popping tug of war. There are none of the common things that Hollywood and others like to pack into scenes of demon possession and exorcism. If something dramatic occurs, it's usually the fleeing demons who are making the thief, the noise. Let's look at one example. The encounter in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29 where the disciples had failed to cast a demon out of a boy. After hearing about this, Jesus turns to the disciples and rebukes them. He then asks for the boy to come forward and brought to him. When the demons see Jesus, they start convulsing the boy. Jesus asks the father about the boy and tells the man that everything is possible for the one who believes, to which the father replies, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Let me read the rest, beginning with the second half of verse 25 through 29. When Jesus saw the crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing it into terrible convulsion. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and stood up. After he'd gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. So in this case, there are histrionics, but on the part of the demon, Satan likes to make a lot of noise. Jesus was calm and direct. And later, he lets the disciples in on the secret formula for defeating demons, which is simply prayer. Prayer, which is a hallmark of the normal Christian life. The bottom line is, don't freak out over Satan and demon possession based on the spurious and misleading images presented in stories and movies. Always go to God's word for the truth. 
This is our second reading. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. And stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, please open our ears to hear your word. Open our minds to understand your word. Open our hearts to receive your word. And bless our hands and feet to do your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. A great definition of spiritual warfare that I came across is, spiritual warfare is the leveraging of everything that God promises against everything that opposes God's purpose. This gets to the basic truth that spiritual warfare is an essential element of the normal Christian life. And by normal Christian life, I mean how we live, grow, and mature in the Spirit. How we exercise and exhibit the daily daily disciplines of grace and holiness. The ways we live out our gifts in the body and advance the kingdom of God. It's all that we do when we are being Christians, producing good fruit. Ephesians 6 is the classic passage everyone turns to when discussing spiritual warfare. There's a good chance you've heard at least one sermon that lays out in fine detail all the pieces and parts of the passage. We're not going to do that today. Instead, there are three key points I want to draw your attention to. One, the vast strength of God. Two, the act of putting on. And three, the wiliness of the enemy. First, the vast strength of God. We Christians like to put the adjective spiritual in front of a lot of man. We just went through a study on spiritual gifts, which we learned yield spiritual fruit. A few summers ago, the adult Sunday school class did a study on spiritual discipline. And here we are today talking about spiritual warfare. So let's be clear. The word spiritual in each of these refers to the Holy Spirit, not some amorphous idea of spirituality. It is through the Holy Spirit that we practice discipline, use our gifts, yield good fruit, and engage in warfare. And it is by the Holy Spirit that we are strengthened by the Lord and by His vast Spirit. I really like that word vast, as the Christian Standard Bible renders the word. Other translations might use mighty strength, great power, or the power of his might. But vast is, I believe, more accurate. Synonyms for vast include immense, expansive, boundless, stupendous, and immeasurable. 
This last word comes up in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in verses 18 and 19, where Paul declares, and I'm paraphrasing, I pray that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. The vastness of God is extremely important truth that we need to latch on to, meditate on, and get firmly implanted into our hearts. We are told at the beginning of Genesis who he is, the creator of everything. Paul expands on this in Colossians 1, 16-17, one of my favorite passages, where he says, For everything was created by him, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. The God who created everything and created it out of nothing, who holds all of his immense creation together by his word, who raised Jesus from the dead, this vast is available to and resident within us as we abide in the Holy Spirit. Two, the act of putting on. The Greek word for full armor is the basis of our English word panoply. Panoply, a fun word, is actually the technical word for a complete set of armor. The broader definition is a complete or impressive collection of things, a splendid display or array. In this definition, for our purposes, we could easily substitute the word things with fruit. As Holy Spirit-powered Christians, our lives should be bountiful with an impressive array of good fruit. Our lives should be a splendid display of all things good, wise, and holy. Note that Paul tells us to put on the full armor. The idea of putting on pops up a lot in Paul's writing. For example, Romans 13, 14 instructs, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And in Galatians 3.10 he says, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. To put on is an intentional action. There's nothing passive here. Just as we get up every morning and choose to get dressed, we must intentionally and deliberately put on Christ and our full armor, our protective spiritual clothing. The items I mentioned, belt, breastplate, sandals, shield, helmet, and sword, representing truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation, and God's word, are characteristics and tools of the normal Christian life. There is nothing listed that should not already be a regular part of our spiritual wardrobe, what we wear and carry. A common mistake is thinking that spiritual warfare is an occasional thing, an event, and that spiritual armor is like the tucks we pull out for rare special occasions. This could not be further from the truth. Just as God's mercies are new every morning, so are our spiritual battles. Imagine, standing on the battlefield, no armor, no sword, when suddenly, over the horizon, you spot an advancing horde of evil. You look at them, put up your hand, and say, Hey, horde, can you wait a minute while I get my armor on? And by that you mean, 
I've not been reading my Bible lately, so let me read a passage now. Or, I don't pray regularly, so give me a second to talk to God now. Or, I haven't really been walking in the Spirit every day, so let me see if I can catch up with Him now. Or, I missed church last weekend. Can you come back next week after I go this Sunday? I guarantee you that the horde will not wait. And you will be dazed and defeated as it rolls over you, crushing you into the mud. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul exhorts Timothy, Be prepared in season and out of season. This is good advice for all of us who claim Christ as our Savior. Third, the wiliness of the devil. Why was Paul telling Timothy to be ready at all times? Because, as he explained in 1 Timothy 1, in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. The title of Hal Lindsey's 1989 book is a statement that's still relevant today. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And he has nothing but bad intentions toward us who are God's people. Do not be deceived. As mentioned earlier, Satan is formidable and not to be with. There is nothing he won't do to bring Christians, churches, and religious organizations down. He has no compunctions, no scruples, no moral qualms. He is relentless, tireless, shifty, cunning, cruel, and a master of deceit and manipulation. Here are a few ways the Bible describes it. Peter cautions us in 1 Peter 5 Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of life, and his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And he warns that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 1 John 3.8 reveals the devil has sinned from the beginning. In 1 John 5.8, Jesus says Satan was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In John 10.10, he says, Satan, the thief, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The bottom line is, Satan is real. He is out to destroy everyone he can. He is a liar and the originator of lies. He is a perpetual sinner. He can be a roaring, ravenous lion or appear as an angel of life. He is clever, cunning, and eminently deceitful. He is a thief. And going back to our definition of spiritual warfare, Satan opposes all of God's purposes in every way. Now, a few things Satan has not he is not a pointy-tailed, two-horned, pitchfork-wielding cartoon character. He cannot be bargained with. If he plays the fiddle, he will outfiddle you. And he will not be outwitted by Daniel Webster or anyone else. While Paradise Lost is a great piece of literature, John Donne was mistaken to claim Satan could reign in hell since hell is his eventual prison. 
And nearly every depiction of saints in the movies and on television are totally off the mark. Most try to humanize him, make him likable, and even a misunderstood tragic character. Don't be fooled. All of this mischaracterization is actually fueled by Satan himself, an attempt to deceive people and lull them into complacency. So how do we deal with Satan into the spiritual world? Here's a simple formula to help provide some guidance. Spiritual discipline fuels spiritual gifts that yield spiritual fruit that guard us in the midst of spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4 reminds us that for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage a war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Spiritual discipline, gifts, and fruit are our weapons of warfare. Spiritual disciplines include prayer, fasting, Bible study, stewardship, gratitude, fellowship, obedience, evangelism, and the like. Spiritual gifts include hospitality, leadership, administration, discernment, prophecy, mercy, teaching, and many more. Spiritual fruit are behaviors and attitudes such as forgiveness, peace, patience, kindness, forbearance, self-control, and unity. Spiritual warfare is our stance as Christians against all that is unholy and evil in the world. It's not about people. It's about the darkness that results from sin and the darkness that fuels sin. We need to correctly identify the enemy. You and I are not the enemy. Internecine warfare, us against us, is something we battle against, not something in which we participate. Recall Ephesians 6.12 that clearly states, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is in faithfully and persistently living out our Holy Spirit-filled Christian life to the glory of God, depending on God and proclaiming Christ, that we will be overcomers in spiritual warfare. Paul provides even more specifics in Galatians 5, in verses 13 through 15, he warns, Serve one another through love, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. In verse 16, he explains to walk by the Holy Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. So what does the flesh or sin desire or produce? Verses 19 through 21 offer several examples. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. If any of these is evident, the spiritual battle is being lost. How do we fight against these? Paul in 1 Timothy 6.11 explains, Flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And as James puts it so succinctly in James 4, 7, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. Here is the crux of spiritual warfare. Will we choose to submit to God and resist the devil, 
which we can only do through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, or will we resist God and choose to submit to the devil, which happens when we are out of step with the Holy Spirit? Today we have learned that there is a spiritual, a spiritual realm, and battles on our behalf are being fought there. That Satan is real, formidable, and seeks our destruction. But ultimately, he is a defeated enemy. That while Satan is defeated, he can still make trouble for us. So we need to be alert to his cunning way. That people are not our enemy. And that living a godly, faithful, steadfast Christian life, growing in maturity and grace, exhibiting good, godly fruit, is our first and greatest defense and protection in spiritual warfare. Remember, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the mission you have called us to here at Huntington Valley. Give us wisdom and courage as we seek to share the hope we have in you with the community around us. Teach us to walk in your vast strength as we proclaim your gospel and push back the darkness in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.